Welcome everyone to our 18th episode of Life Between the Notes. We are so excited you are here. Morgan and I are thrilled to be able to share these interviews with all of you and your likes and follows and supportive comments on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook really help keep us going. If you are enjoying this series, you can also help us by giving us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Recently, I have experienced what I would call a life event that came in the form of a car accident. These kinds of circumstances certainly force you to reflect and acknowledge how fortunate you are. I am experiencing that for sure with my personal life and in regard to this podcast. Um, It has only reinforced my mission to keep putting these episodes out there. Everyone has a story. Everyone's story should be heard. And while realistically, I'm not going to get to everyone I want to get to, um, because these episodes do take a lot of time to put together, um, I am going to keep trying. For this episode, we have two new sponsors who we are really excited to share with you. Our first sponsor is J.R. Judd Violins who have been providing excellent instruments and service to the beginning string player and professionals alike for over 35 years. With over 400 instruments and bows, which range from student models to fine older European and American offerings, they can match you with an instrument that fits your needs and budget. Whether sales, rentals, or restoration, they are happy to lend their combined 107 years experience to your particular needs. You can find more information at jrjudviolins.com. We are also thrilled to have the Apollo Chamber Players sponsoring Noni's episode. This Houston, Texas-based group is very special to this episode because it also features one of Noni's sons, Matthew Dietrich, on violin. Matthew is also the founder as well as the artistic and executive director of the group. The Apollo Chamber Players connects communities and cultures through globally inspired music. The ensemble's latest album release, Moonstrike, has been called deeply expressive and out of this world by Gramophone Magazine. Moonstrike is a universal celebration of storytelling, space, and folk song realized through new works by Jennifer Higdon, Jared Impachachaha Tate, and Pierre Jalbert. Available now on streaming platforms and apollochamberplayers.org. Apollo recently presented a concert at Carnegie Hall, and on April 7th, they will make their debut at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. at 7.30 p.m. Tickets for that concert can be found at kennedy-center.org. Next, you will hear an excerpt of Matthew Dietrich's solo in Jennifer Higdon's In the Shadow of the Mountain. Please enjoy Noni's Life Between the Notes.
Welcome everyone to Life Between the Notes, where we are going beyond the bio and bringing you interviews of your favorite South Central Pennsylvania musicians. I'm Kirsten Myers, an oboist living in the Lancaster area with my co-host Morgan Davis, a flutist also in the Lancaster area. So good morning, Morgan. Hello. It's Monday as we're recording today. <laughs> I just got my coffee in the shot. <laughs> <laughs> I, and actually, I only have my water today, but um, yeah, it's kind of the Mondayest of all Mondays, mm -hmm. uh, since we're actually recording the day after the Super Bowl. Um, so we'll get to that later, but, um, <laughs> uh, but Morgan and I are so grateful that all of you are listening and hope you're enjoying these episodes. Um, if you do have comments or suggestions, please do let us know. We started this as a way to document the musical lives of local musicians and and I'm sure Morgan agrees that it's been fascinating listen, listening to the variety of stories in regard to how local symphonies were born, uh, what college and professional auditions were like uh, many, many years ago. Um, but Morgan and I are glad to be here, and I certainly wouldn't be able to do it without her or my husband, Ken, uh, assisting me with video. <laughs> That's for sure. We all need our tech crews. Uh, <laughs> takes a village. Yes. <laughs> um, welcome to our 18th episode and welcome to our incredibly talented guest and the first violinist, I believe, that we've had on Life Between the Notes. Uh, and it is Noni Dietrich. So uh, Venona Noni Dietrich received a bachelor's of music education from Wichita State University in Kansas and a master's of music education from Temple University in Pennsylvania. She is the director and founder of the York area Suzuki Super Bows, a private violin and viola studio and performing group, and the No Strings Attached String Quartet. Noni has been a violinist with the York Symphony Orchestra for 34 years. Currently, she sits on the York Symphony Board as an orchestra representative, plus serving on the Education Committee and Artistic Vision and Direction Task Force. In 2017, she received the first York Symphony Orchestra Chuck Long Award, honoring outstanding leadership, commitment, and dedication to the greater York community. Noni also plays in the Gettysburg Chamber Orchestra and Allegro, the Chamber Orchestra of Lancaster. Noni has previously performed with the Lancaster and Harrisburg Symphonies, the Reading Pops Orchestra, the PA Philharmonic, and numerous orchestras in Indiana, Kansas, and Illinois as concertmaster, principal, or section player. She has also served 11 years as the assistant conductor of the York Junior Symphony. After 27 and a half years, Noni retired from the Dallastown Area School District as an instructor of strings. She continues private teaching at her home studio and as an adjunct instructor in the prep department of York College of Pennsylvania. In the summer, you can find her teaching, coaching, and conducting at the Baltimore, Maryland String Orchestra Camp. Noni and her son, Ben, premiered the Longview Strings Camp in the summer of 2022 to provide younger students with a string camp experience. She has participated in educational music in our schools and Stage the Page school programs in York and Lancaster counties. Noni currently serves on the private studio committee of the American String Teachers Association. 
For 10 years, she also served on the board of the Pennsylvania Delaware String Teachers Association, also known as Podesta. And in 2020, she was presented with the Podesta Outstanding String Teacher Award. And while living in Southern York County with her husband, Joe, they raised three musical sons who were also members of the York Symphony Orchestra. So this is just amazing, Noni, and so impressive. And you have had and continue to have such an amazing career. And we are honored to have you here today. Thank you. I feel honored to be here. Well, thank you. And, and thanks for listening in. I know you've been uh, listening to our episodes too, and we appreciate your support. So um, as I mentioned earlier, it is the Monday after the Super Bowl. And so it's kind of odd that I would actually start by talking about sports. <laughs> but um, my first question actually um, has to do with the Super Bowl last night, which was uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. And I don't know if the two of you were watching it all, um, and the three of us can talk about this, but um, there was definitely profound disappointment uh, in this area when the Eagles lost. And with some of our other guests, we've talked about the parallels between music and sports, and there certainly is some common ground. And my thought this morning after that is, how do we as musicians deal with disappointment, um, especially for musicians and students in particular? Uh, what do we say to our students when an audition doesn't go well for them? Um, and especially if they were confident that it would go well. Um, so in your experience, um, and Noni, I'll go to you first. Um, is there anything that you found is helpful to tell students or even ourselves when we have um, something that happens like that? Now that's a very valid question. And, and it happens so frequently. I have uh, numerous students who are in the high school uh, age range and they're participating in auditions and seating uh, chairs and auditions, and they do get disappointed. Um, so I guess the first thing I do is just make sure that I acknowledge their sadness and their disappointment and validate that. Uh, I try not to let them uh, start being negative with themselves, uh, but just think positively and what we can do in the future to uh, correct that. For example, when you went into your audition, how do you feel you did? And they start, oh, I was just awful. It was terrible. But try and get them, well, were you confident? Uh, what would have made the audition, what do you think would have made the audition go better? And try and, and have them articulate what might have happened or how they feel. It's really difficult when a child says, I, I thought I played great. I didn't make any mistakes. And it was, I was so, I felt so good about, it. and then they, they don't make it or they get a bad seat. Now that's, that is really hard to deal with. But otherwise I just, uh, we try and well, let's, let's make a plan. How can we improve and what can we do for, so that the next time I always have them think positively for the next time. Don't let this be defeating or, um, you know, that they don't want to audition again. So we focus on the positive and, and, one thing I always stress to them is that even before they go, it's a win-win for you. You've practiced hard. The level of your literature uh, is so much higher and you've improved your technique, you know, so much more. So it really is, it is a win-win. Maybe the final outcome isn't what you wanted, 
but let's move on from there. There's still so much to learn. And um, I'm trying to get them to talk about what do you think you could have done better? And we talk about maybe preparation. Were you as prepared as you could have been? And uh, we go from there. And also, I try and stress that this is one moment in your whole life. And, you know, you're a person and you like sports. A lot of my musicians are, are really fine athletes, too, and fine, you know, just fine students overall. Um, and this is just one moment in your life. So you cannot, you know, you cannot base your self-worth or your worth as a musician on this audition. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, you know, it is my boys went through all this, all these auditions and they'd be so hurt and devastated. My oldest son, Matt, when he first came home from college at, at Rice University, he, he said, Mom, he said, I can't believe how much I stressed over all those auditions and seating and, and how, how upset I get. He said, it means nothing now, you know, where I'm at now. Everybody is so good. Everyone's so supportive. It really, it, mm-hmm. in the scheme of things, it, it really means nothing. And I, you know, at this age, the younger students can't quite grasp that. Uh, that it's going to be better, it's going to be okay, and in the scheme of things, you know, years from now, but I, I, I do mention that, that this is just, you know, yeah, a, a small setback, not a devastating blow. Yeah, yeah, age definitely gives us perspective on, on all of that, for sure, <laughs> um, yeah, because when you're small, and you don't have anything to compare it to, right. and you just know that it hurts, <laughs> Well, and, and a lot of it is peer pressure. You know, their best friend or the colleague, their their big competitor might have gotten in or done better than they. And if they start comparing themselves to someone else, I try and stop that and just yeah. say, let's focus on you and right. your strengths and where we're going to go from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Morgan, did you have anything to add? I mean, I just agree with everything that, that you said. And, and I think I always think about my own experiences as a student and and what we just said about perspective and how you only have so much perspective at that age that's your gauge for yourself or those auditions and I remember the devastation when things you know I knew I played well and things didn't work out and then as you get older you realize that and this I think is the sports analogy part of it someone doesn't win so when there are two teams in a game even if they are equal someone will come out on top in that moment in time. And that's what I always try to focus on with my students is, you know, that audition is one moment on your timeline. This is one thing that happened. And even if you played your best, somebody else might've had a better day that day. Doesn't take away from all the work you did. It doesn't take away from what you've learned, you know, and the only way we keep learning is to keep trying, Um, you know, and then when you, we get older and we become, you know, if you become a professional musician, you really understand how difficult it is to be on at the exact moment you need to be and that things just don't always, you know, and, and I think the biggest thing in hindsight, I remember those, those really sad moments as a student, but I also think it was really important to feel sad. It's okay for things to matter to you and then be disappointing when they don't work out. And like you said, just focusing on the positives of what you've learned, how you use that experience going forward and just acknowledging the fact that like, yeah, I'm, I'm really sad. I didn't get to do this. It all matters. It does. And that's why I try and validate your feelings because mm-hmm. they are sad. They are hurt. Yes. I, I remember a former student of mine who is currently uh, in her second or third year of working on her uh, doctorate of music and violin performance degree. Mm-hmm. And as a freshman, 
I mean, she was hot stuff. She was really good. And she, she auditioned for district orchestra and didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And she was really upset. In fact, she was mad. Mm-hmm. And for her, she was so mad. She just really dug in and practiced so hard. She was going to show everybody. And she did. I mean, she's, she had a free ride to undergraduate school and now grad school and now her, her doctorate. So for her, and it doesn't always work that way, but for right. her, it was, it was quite motivating to have yeah. that little failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I had a similar experience of, of really like, I had just sort of decided that this was going to be the thing I was going to do. And, and it was like, I just expected to do well in this audition. Like I had been, and I didn't get in and there were a variety of factors to that, but it was a very, um, like, I feel that was a pivotal experience for me, you know, to have that negative to build on later. That's right. Yeah. And and the other unknown, well, you know, there's so many things that a student can't control in an audition. So you try and focus on things they can control. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, also, I mean, in the audition process, maybe your judge just didn't like your interpretation of something, exactly. or they wanted well, it's to not you at all. And so I try and bring all that up um, in preparation for auditions. I yes. particularly, for example, district auditions. I hold it's called a, a district boot camp, like several days before. I have all my uh, the students come, and we gather around and we play the scales and mm-hmm. and uh, their solo excerpts and they're often very nervous about this. In fact, I've had students say that this is probably more stressful than the actual audition. So that, they, yeah, anyway, that, well, that's the whole point to get mm-hmm. some of the nerves and maybe yeah. stress out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's part of the preparation. I try and, and, and mm-hmm. um, prepare them for the, um, we also talk about getting a good night's sleep, of course, yeah. and yeah. Good breakfast with proteins and carbs and getting enough rest, don't be rushed. And, um, and, and part of the game plan for the audition, you know, uh, the preparation before is so important. Mm-hmm. And some advice from my, my uh, son who teaches in Vienna, Austria, uh, warm up carefully and slowly, don't, don't do anything fast because the more chances of making a mistake and then that'll be in your mind yeah. and in your fingers. So, so we, we go over all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing I've really noticed with my students too, is like, as we get better and I have a crew of students right now who are, have been with me since they were very little and now they're in high school and they're playing really well and they're just really um, good students and as they get better, they become more self-critical, which we do. Our ear gets better. We have higher expectations for ourselves. Our critiques of ourselves are stronger and more accurate. And so then they're really hard on themselves over their audition process because they understand what they want and what they're capable of. And so I think some of it is priming them to balance, you know, the fact that they've, they're able to do that now with the realities of taking the audition. That's very true. That's my studio too, uh, primarily a Suzuki studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in the beginning stages, I'm primarily Suzuki, but but like most of us, we use a lot of uh, other ideas. But uh, when the kids are little, and I can speak specifically to my sons, they were fearless. Mm-hmm. They go out and perform and play, and it was nothing. They were barely thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And yet, as they got older, uh, then it became, oh, they got more self-conscious and they started yeah. thinking more about what they're doing. How do I move my bow, how my fingers? And so, yes, yeah, they do. They get more self-critical and then more self-conscious. Mm-hmm. So it makes audition process more stressful. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think too, like um, sometimes when that happens, when they have been successful in the past, like you were saying earlier, Noni, that, and then like, so say for instance, with districts, you know, if they made it one year and then I, I do tell them, you know, look, just because it happened last year, doesn't necessarily mean that it's also going to happen this year and you can't assume these kinds of things either so you still have to work you know you still have to um, keep it up getting back to what we how we normally start our episodes um so noni you've lived in a few different locations um did you were you raised in pennsylvania i my father's a minister and so he, he, although he could choose where he wanted to go, unlike some denominations where you're placed, uh, I, I was born when he was a pastor in Westminster, Maryland. I was born at John Hopkins Hospital and was there for the first four years of my life. And then he moved to another position in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So that's where I began my uh, elementary school at Lincoln Elementary in Harrisburg. And it was there then I had a best friend. Her name was Melody, of all things. And she came from a musical family and already at age five played the piano beautifully. Mm -hmm. I wanted to play the piano like my friend Melody and uh, took lessons from Mrs. Beisline, who was my friend's teacher also. And back at that time, uh, which would have been the, well, mid fifties, actually, Suzuki method was not known in the United States at that time. Uh, Around 1962, I think was when we first started getting information about that but my mother was a Suzuki teacher long before she knew anything about it like she'd sit with me sometimes to my uh, I wasn't happy so always that she was there but she was very supportive likewise my dad and she'd have me singing we sang in uh, church sang to us at church or I sang in the church choir and there's a lot of music in the house my my dad was a victim of a, a teacher in in school who told him please don't sing mm. and he was so self-conscious he 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 uh, he was told he he could not sing he could not hold pitch and back then it was called mono, you know, monotone mm-hmm. and he was so self-conscious it was one of his his crosses to bear as he would say throughout mm-hmm. his life so i i always remembered that and tried to be a little you know more sensitive to mm-hmm. students right difficulty in music but but he always uh, we had lots of uh, back that time lp records uh I know <laughs> another um, person you interviewed mentioned the Reader's Digest monthly uh, subscription plan. We had that also. And I just listened to it all the time. And when I was doing my chores, which I hated, dusting or cleaning the bathroom, I'd be listening to this glorious music. (laughs) You need something to help you get through those. those That's right. That's for sure. Can you actually, can you explain what the Suzuki method is? Because I don't know that everyone might know what that is. All right. Um, uh, It's a philosophy of teaching and uh, we think of it as a philosophy of teaching music but it, it can actually uh, be involved in all other areas of learning it was in, influenced well started by dr sinichi suzuki a japanese violinist whose family actually had a violin factory where they made violins and uh, dr suzuki studied many years in germany where he met his wife and uh uh, played to a very high level, and I can't, I, I'm not quite sure of the total timeline. But when he returned back to Jap- Japan, it was after the war, and the country was devastated, and in places leveled, as we know. Uh, 
and he he'd see these children wandering around aimlessly some of them just orphans and without any hope and joy in their life and he he also noticed that how very young children learn to speak Japanese which is a very hard language and just by listening as, as growing up in their homes, they, they could, he called it the mother tongue method because he saw that children could learn to speak their language. It just became part of them. But anyway, he convinced his, his family's violin factory to build little fractional sized violins. And he started teaching children based on the mother tongue method, which translates into a lot of listening. And, and the children learn to play by listening. And, and then later, when they're comfortable with the instrument, they, um, notation is introduced. It also highly involves uh, a parent. And he likes to call it the Suzuki Triangle, the teacher and the parent-child all working together to foster uh, the musical development. It's a very uh, structured program starting, for example, book one, there's piano, violin, flute, guitar, pretty much any instrument anymore. And it's very structured and each, each piece or each technique the child learns the, the techniques are learned within the pieces so it's not like we start with etudes or scales although we certainly have that that later but it's a, a, a very comprehensive system um, and the child learns each step of the way and uh, when I was in school studying to be a, a music educator I had a lot of music uh, psychology of music psychology of music and I remember definitely the name Jerome Bruner and his theory of learning, which was all based on building blocks and the spiral curriculum and lots of repetition. And I thought, well, this is just perfect. This is what I've been taught in my education classes. This fits in perfectly, perfectly with music education. Um, so it's, it's a lot of parent involvement and starting early that even children as young as, you know, we call them babies, two and three can, can, uh, can learn to play. And, and the other thought is, he was bucking the, the nature, uh, uh, the thought of uh, nature versus nurture. And he was all about nurture. He believed that every child could learn and every child could be successful. Uh, and one of the hallmarks, I think, of his method is that his goal was not to raise professional musicians, but to raise healthy, happy, successful uh, adults with, with self-esteem and, and people for whom society could benefit and anyway that was his goal and so I think that was what in, intrigued me and how I became involved one it fit in so well with my music education also when I applied for my first teaching job at Menham Township in, in Lancaster County I was asked if I had any Suzuki experience at that point I was a brand new teacher I just graduated a couple weeks ago from Wichita State and landed this job in, in Pennsylvania. And so I had no practical experience, but uh, a teacher I still remember to this day in my very first semester of college in Psych 101 was a Dr. Pronko who, who would bring up uh, the Suzuki method and how this nature versus nurture, that was the, his theme, that's why he, he brought it up. And he even had Suzuki come to campus, not when I was there, unfortunately, but Suzuki came to campus and talked. And he'd always have all the violin students perform on stage um, mm -hmm. to, to, to show you know, what can be done musically. So that was my first introduction to Suzuki in college. And then as a, this brand new teacher at Manham Township, I, uh, of course, had done a lot of study on Suzuki by that time. I incorporated a lot of the 
ideas into my teaching, although it was public school and it was, you know, group lessons and I didn't have parents or that. Oh, that's the other hallmark. Uh, the parent involvement is so critical, of course, when you're starting young students. So right. uh, parents are a part of my studio. They come and listen and, and take notes and are part of the practicing at home for their children. Now, did you say your your mom, uh, did she, she, she started you with piano, correct? She started, yeah, she played piano quite well. As a minister's wife, she would be called on at churches to play piano. So she wanted that for me. And so she was uh, she was very supportive. But I don't know. I like piano, I guess. But I saw an episode. You ladies are too young to remember this. It was called Ding Dong, Miss Francis's Ding Dong School. And I think I highlighted that in my <laughs> bio that, honestly, that was a pivotal moment. I, she had a violinist guest on Miss Francis's. And... Um, I was just hooked. I was just mesmerized. And back then in the early 50s, you know, there wasn't, there was no children's programming. She was, I mean, she is the, you know, the, the Sesame Street or uh -huh. Mr. Rogers of, of back then. And she was all alone in this field and they were excellent. And you just felt like you were in her little classroom and she was talking just to you. And I just was so taken with the violin solo she had one day. And I told my mom, that's what I want to do. But uh, at that time, my mom and a lot of people thought that you had to learn piano first and get a solid background mm -hmm. in music. And, and that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It wasn't until I was about 10, okay. started fifth grade actually, and we moved by this time to uh, McPherson, Kansas, that I was actually able to start violin. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, and I'm sure the piano background certainly did help <laughs> when you were. Yeah. I, I stayed with piano through college and, I mean, excuse me, through high school. But mm -hmm. it wasn't my favorite. So were so were you competitive then in high school? Um, with like, did you audition for lots of different things or? No, not really. No. I, I was from a small town that did not even have a string program. Oh, okay. And and when I and one of my best friends started violin lessons with the local college professor. And we really loved it and wanted to do more and more. Our parents went to the school board and requested strongly that they could start a string program. It was a, a big band town, mm. a, lot, a, a huge band town. And um, the band director to high school, he was, <laughs> the board agreed. They agreed to start a string program. So this band, this band director, he had to teach us strings and orchestra. He was a wonderful man. And I remember him as a big influence in my musical life. And I just appreciate so much him taking on that extra responsibility and giving it his all. Mm. And then as the program grew, they hired uh, an actual string teacher. Uh, uh, a young lady named Lenora Martin came from Eastman all the way out to this little town. A town, it was only 10,000 people in this town. Mm -hmm. and became our string teacher and she was uh, just uh, you know, very supporting and very helpful that mm -hmm. time I knew I wanted to go into music so it was very good yeah. to have a, a person of her caliber right right and so how old were you at that point when she started when she was hired I was in high school so I had her for three years our high school was 10th through 12th grade mm -hmm. and in the meantime we had a local college McPherson College that started a community orchestra so I would start to play in that and I mean, there was no audition for that. Our teachers just recommended us. Uh, I did audition for uh, some youth symphonies. Our, our parents would drive us to Salina, which is about 30 minutes away. And I auditioned for that orchestra. It's my first experience in a, um, a bigger group 
with uh -huh. uh, very fine players. And then uh, two, two years before I started college, I started taking lessons from the professor at Wichita State University, it's James Caesar. Wow. And I started playing in the Wichita Youth Symphony and that was pretty competitive. So that was a, that was a pretty big deal. And I enjoyed that very much. And it was just a natural thing then for me to evolve into going to Wichita State University. Back then, I or my parents had no idea about auditioning and mm -hmm. or colleges or conservatories. So we just, yeah. We yeah. Just in some it. ways, it's a, a different world. With it was a different that. world. It was totally not stressful at all. I didn't have to audition at all. <laughs> I got a scholarship and that was it. I went four years. Right. Yeah, and and uh, honestly, like we hear that a lot, even with like local orchestras, and at that time too, that where people have said, "Well, I didn't have to audition," you know, you just go in, and it's like kind of a who you know, and um, and then you and then you start playing. That's right. I I know I could never audition into an orchestra at this stage. Like, uh. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, but it's certainly turn into a whole different thing. And with the with the whole college audition process, um, you know, now it's, you know, people will go to seven to 10 different oh, schools. My, son, my oldest and youngest, that was there. That was our life there. Yes, and year. you went through that with them. Yes, yes. Yeah. But it was, it, it was interesting, even though they auditioned, I think my oldest, I think both of them, it was like six schools. And they had their safety school and they had their, stretch their you know dream mm -hmm. school and everything in between but it was like they knew when they went to a certain campus this is where they wanted to be it was like it just hit them the teacher the town the co uh, mm -hmm. yeah I was always amazed at how that just fell right into place yeah it's amazing how that happens in fact we we just we um, recorded an episode with Jan Dixon, uh, a cello player in the Reading area. And she um, said the same thing about herself with Indiana universities. Like as soon as she went out there, she was like, ooh, this, this is where I want to go. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, that was my experience too, though. I did six auditions and I had in my head like where I wanted to go. And then I got to campus and I thought, oh, I don't like this at all. Exactly. <laughs> like, it it, it didn't feel right. The people didn't feel right. Like nothing about it felt right. And so you just knew, you know, and that was actually my worst audition. Cause by the time I went in the room, it was like, well, I know I don't want to go here. Like I don't. Yeah. yeah. That was my middle son. I mean, he was going to school for photojournalism uh, with a music. Well, actually went in as a music major and a photojournalist. And he went up to uh, Rochester Institute of technology. They had a great photography program. And we no more took a tour of the campus and he said, I'm done. Let's go. I mean, yep. That was it. Yep. <laughs> From that. Sure. Yeah. Well, and now you have to make so many recordings and things for good schools. I feel like you have to be so invested before you even get there and, and, and have that experience of what campus life is like, you know, so it's like summer programs can be really helpful. So at least you can meet people mm -hmm. and, and see what it's like. And mm -hmm. right. I, uh, the majority of my students do not go into music as a major. Uh, several of them are music minors, but uh, almost all of them continue to play in college. They try and find an outlet in college. Uh, but for those that are planning uh, to go into music, you know, it does. The process starts early. Mm -hmm. uh, like my, my students that are going to be seniors next year, well, we have their audition material mapped out that they're working on and, and, or, and or know already. Uh, encourage them if they haven't taken piano lessons 
uh, to get piano lessons and theory classes um, and just avail themselves of any opportunities and to start networking mm -hmm. like in the with all the experts that are in the areas. And um, yeah, it, yeah, it does. It, it, it's not just that time of auditioning. It, it's mm -hmm. years of preparation. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And it and doing that too can certainly um, make your first year of college uh, a bit easier. <laughs> um, if you've had some piano background, had some theory background and all of that. So you were at Wichita State and and she and you had you got your bachelor's in music education there. And did you go um, directly to Temple after that? Not exactly. Um, after I graduated from college, uh, well, of course, I had to apply for jobs. And I was being in the Midwest, there are opportunities. I like St. Louis, I had a job, uh, some applications in St. Louis and Arkansas and also in Kansas. Well, my parents at the time were back in Pennsylvania. And my mother really was hoping I'd come back east. And on her own, she checked with uh, she checked with the Department of Education and and found that uh, and checked to see if there were any openings for a string teacher in the South Central Pennsylvania area, and she was given a whole list of places. And Manham Township in Nestville uh, actually had an opening for for a second semester of that year, 1974. And I I had just graduated at December of 1973. So it was, it was just perfect. And uh, I, I took that interview and again, was asked about my Suzuki experience and uh, I got the job. So that, and it was a very, it was, um, it was a great, great place to be. And how long were you there? I was there only four years okay. before I met my husband and then moved with him to Indiana. But uh, I think back on that time, in fact, I was trying to think of my, my first days. I remember the first concert I had and, you know, as a young person and just graduating from college, I, you know, I think I thought I knew it all. And I think I was very confident. And I, and I don't know how, you know, when you think of scheduling and I had elementary, I, I had three through, I guess, eighth grade was my assignment. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, somehow, somehow I did it. And, and I had a, a great mentor in Harold Rother, Rothermill, I think his name was, and, and uh, made some good friends that were very supportive. So I felt it was a good experience. Uh, I was at, uh, I think I was at Manhattan Township, even during my first year, I applied for my master's degree at Temple University. And, and that's one thing I also tell students who are going into music ed, you know, if you can get a job right out of college, do it because uh, school districts do pay mm -hmm. a lot of a master's program. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what I did. I got my master's while I was teaching at uh, Manhattan Township. And and I completed four years, so I was able to get my permanent certification for Pennsylvania, which came wow. in handy years later when I finally moved back to Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and that's a lot of work <laughs> to have a full time job and then be getting your master's. Well, well, I was single and uh, yeah. I had the time. Yeah. It, it was a very positive experience. Temple had a wonderful program for for people like me, professionals who were teaching. They had uh, institutes, like all-day Saturday workshops, like once a month. They had summer programs, and and uh, they were just wonderful. I met exciting. I met lifelong friends through that program. Uh, 
I had one, I think he had to have one residency. So one summer I actually lived in Philadelphia. I rented a house and a house sat actually in Germantown. And, and that was just a really mm -hmm. good time. Yeah. Cool. And so, so then, and so where did you meet your husband then? Well, during that time, um, I was very involved in church. My father was a church of the brethren minister and we had these annual conferences every year at some location around the country. In the summer of, of 1977, the conference was in Richmond, Virginia. We each had a mutual friend and a person that we highly respected who said to each of us on the slide, you know, I know this person. I think you ought to get to know. And they're going to be at this conference at Richmond. And at the time, I wasn't planning to go because I was playing at a dinner theater in Lancaster someplace, and it, it sort of overlapped. But then, you know, I really liked, I respected this person, and uh, my parents were going. So I made the effort. I went down to this conference. We literally met on a street corner after I got off the train. Oh, yeah. And I was with my parents, and my dad said, oh, by the way, Noni, this is Joe Dietrich. And, and uh, we talked. And... Another part of that story before that, my husband to be had interviewed with my dad for a position as an executive in the office where my my dad was had been working. So I had read his his you know resume. I knew all about it before I met. <laughs> so when he said, "This is joking," oh, this is joking. So we already had that connection, and he was in charge of a coffee house. So he said, "Well, hey, why don't you come to the coffee house some night, and we'll." we'll we'll play we'll make some music together so i did that and we ended up he was a, a, a country fiddler i mean i mean a country musician loved folk music so what do i know what do i know so we came up with uh devil's dream fiddle tune mm -hmm. so we we played that at the at the coffee house and the rest is history we were married six months later oh wow six <laughs> yeah. months and as my husband likes to say we started dating after that he was in indiana <laughs> here, and I was here in pennsylvania but we jokingly say the devil made us do it, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Six months. So then, um, <laughs> so then you had then moved to Indiana soon yes. after. Yes. I moved to Indiana with him. And then, uh, again, that was in the middle of the year. I think we were married on, New on Christmas Eve, 1977, okay. and then moved right out to Logansport, Indiana. Okay. And where I, uh, soon after uh was hired to teach general music at, a, at an elementary school and it was called galveston indiana not galveston but galveston so, and i must admit a lot of my teaching career a lot of my 27 and a half years was general music which which i enjoyed somewhat i mean <laughs> i preferred string teaching but again thinking of the suzuki philosophy that every child can learn and and this might be the only exposure that children get to music is what I can provide for mm -hmm. them or give to them. I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I found that satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's the responsibility, right? Yes. And, yeah. So, and how long were you in Indiana? We were in Indiana um, six, six years. Six oh, okay. years. Our, our two older boys were born uh, while we were in Indiana. Oh, okay. Okay. And so were you working at that time? I, I, I only worked for two years before I had my oldest son and oh. then I stayed home and that's when I started my my first uh Suzuki studio ah, okay. I, I had taught a lot of private lessons before that but not officially Suzuki mm -hmm. so this was 
I really, I really tried to do a Suzuki studio with the group lessons and parents and mm-hmm. listening and mm-hmm. involved with that. So how did having your children, did it affect the, the way you teach? Like after you had children, do you think it like changed anything in the way that you, you taught? Um, I knew from the beginning, I wanted them to uh, play a musical instrument. And since I was a professional on violin, I thought I, I can do this with them. I can, I felt like I could give them this gift of music and I wanted them to have something that they could feel good about and uh, uh, just, you know, have some mm-hmm. pride in. Um, so they were like my little uh, experiments in a way. Uh, and it, it, I wouldn't say it was always 100% positive or happy. I mean, there were a lot of tears. I mean, getting a little toddler to want to practice. They started, my youngest two and a half and the other boys were three. And I, I did always have them with another teacher, which was very helpful to say, oh, Mrs. Bloom, you know, says to do this, and Mrs. Weirkert says to do this. So mm-hmm. that was always helpful, and they were very respectful to, to their teachers. But I, I really learned from my boys what worked and what didn't work, and uh, each of the boys were so different. I had to be so creative in coming up ways to just get them to practice or to motivate them, and we had their little tricks from fruit roll-ups to watching 30 minutes of Superman cartoon or just reading a chapter in a book. You know, each child had their favorite thing that they would do. Yeah. And, and it worked. Um, uh, like I say, it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always happy, but we stuck to it and had a routine. And But, but they were my role models. And, and unfortunately and sadly with my own kids, I probably had less patience than I did with my paid <laughs> my paid students. Uh, you know, I could have all the patience in the world with them. And yet uh, I only have so much time, Matt, you got to sit down now, we got to practice, you know, so, so. Yeah, I think that that happens, I think with every parent who try, who is teaching their own child, that's certainly what I've found that, yeah, my patience is certainly smaller <laughs> with my own children. And I tried with piano with uh, my older two, and that just, it did not last long. So I knew by the time the third one came along, okay, you're going somewhere else because. <laughs> well, mine, mine always had a somewhere else that they went. And that, again, that was really very helpful. Uh, I, I'm reminded of what you just said. My, my husband's mother was a piano teacher, a very fine pianist. And she tried to get her, she had three sons also. She tried to get them to take piano and none of them wanted to do it. So she, like she bribed my husband, she'd pay him a dime for every every lesson. And he said that lasted like two weeks. He just didn't want anything to do with it. But then on his own, he picked up the guitar and is a very, very fine folk musician. And I, I compare him and he, he says he doesn't read music. He sings in the New York Symphony Chorus. And I say, well, how do you do it? And he goes, well, he sees this note, this note, and he can hear the interval. I mean, that's what it's all about. Here I am, you know, undergraduate and graduate reading music. I can't do that as well as he does. He can play anything by ear. Uh, Some will say, oh, do you know this song? As they sing a few tunes, uh, sing a few bars. Oh, too high, oh, too low. And he can, you know, he can just do it. Yeah, so he, I feel my, my son's uh, inherited his fine ear. So in his own right, he's a, he's a fine musician. And yeah. then we incorporated that into our family programs, his folk music side, his coach music side to the 
first class side, the classical side, where we have this little family band. And when they were little and, and cute, it, we were really popular. I mean, people just love seeing these little kids playing. Oh, yeah. Everything from Twinkle to the Bach double to, you know, concertos to hymns and, and mm -hmm. other folk songs. Where would you play? Oh, like church, lots of churches, yeah. city groups. We did a lot of uh, York Symphony music halls or a fundraisers for the symphony back back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. And again, they, they enjoyed it. I mean, we might be fussing at them right before we go on stage. Now, smile, eyebrows up. They'd go out and be beaming. And just minutes before, we might have had some, <laughs> had some stern words. But I, they look back on that, I think, mostly positively. And in fact, our oldest son, Matthew, who has the, the group that Paula Chamber players, he says he was inspired by our our early family group band because we merged folk music with classical music and that's what his Apollo Chamber music is, is all about. So I mean it's sort of gratifying as a parent to have him recognize that and to thank us as parents that we gave him that opportunity. So absolutely <laughs> you back to Pennsylvania then? Uh, after five years in the Chicago area, it was Elgin, Illinois, uh, my husband had always said that we'd move back closer to my family. His family was in sort of in the Midwest, his parents. And so after five years, he was offered a pastorate at the Cadors Church of the Brethren in Southern York County. And so we moved back and then my parents were about a, a, an hour away. And of course, we had more uh, access then to grandparents and, and a support system and uh, he was there at the church 10, 10 years and then did some administrative church work in, in the area also so our children we were able to once they started school here our youngest was at preschool they all graduated from Dallastown High School we had sort of made that commitment that we would stay long enough yeah right well how and soon after you moved back to Pennsylvania, then did you start working at Dallas Town? Well, let's see, Ben, my youngest was only two. And I had always said I wouldn't start back teaching till he was in uh, kindergarten or first grade. But I was actually called by um, a school, Central York School District had a Suzuki string program. Hmm. And I through an acquaintance of mine who had told them about me. Well, actually it was a student's parent who told them about the Suzuki teacher. And so they called me in for an interview and I got that job. It was part-time, it was 50%. And 
And uh, I accepted, even though Ben was, well, he was like four and a half or something like that. So that's when I, I started teaching at Central York part-time for about seven years. And I did elementary, mostly elementary, and um, um, then strings, fourth and fifth grade strings. I enjoyed that. But in the meantime, my boys were involved in the Dallastown string program and they had uh, you know, wonderful instructors, David Deal and Ann Mal and, uh, uh, Ann, and David were very enthusiastic and supportive of our boys because they came in playing at a pretty advanced level. Um, uh, as Suzuki students, you know, they had started when they were very young and so were playing like the Bach double and things like that. Uh, it's not that they were extraordinarily talented, it's just that they'd had all this experience already. Suzuki was not that well known in the county and what was known about it was not positive, was not 100% positive. So we had to overcome some prejudices uh, among the local teachers about um, the, the positive benefits of this method. Uh, one of the negatives was that the children did not learn to read music. And that is true. They do not learn to re use, uh, read music when they begin their instrument. I mean, they could be two and three years old and they're not probably even reading books. Mm -hmm. So, so they, they'd seen pro, uh, programs or students that weren't reading music by the time they were in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And then that, and that's a misuse of the system. Uh, that's not the way it was meant to be. So, uh, so gradually, you know, um, as, as, as I started teaching students and my boys became known, uh, some of the, posit the positives of the Suzuki method um, uh -huh. became known and people accepted it more. Mm -hmm. so, so did you use that method in the public school? Yes, at, at, uh, Colleen Elias was a string teacher at Central York and she, she had a Suzuki program. Parents mm -hmm. were invited in at, but it was not a requirement. Of course, in the public school, it was not a requirement. But uh, we used the Suzuki books, and and I must admit, it was it was hard without the parental support. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, we were committed to it, and and in addition, like I I do now, also is uh, in addition to the Suzuki literature, we would have a method book, like essential uh, elements at some point, and and we would use that as a supplementary. Method. And we, we could obviously could not wait if students started in third grade, they needed to be playing in ensembles by fourth grade. So we could not delay note reading for, you know, as long as was beneficial for the little, little Suzuki children. So uh, in, in that way, we got the kids reading and able to play in, in little ensembles. Mm -hmm. Was it the same then when you were at Dallas Town? Oh, yeah. No, that was different. Uh, right. That was the point. Uh, while I was teaching in Central and my boys were in enmeshed in Dallas Town, mm -hmm. and I got to know David Deal and Ann Mal very well, and they knew they needed help in the district. Their string program was so strong and so large, and they they sort of hired me away from Central. So for two years, I was I ended up seventy percent at Central and thirty percent at Dallas Town, oh. and I would alternate days and schedules. And then finally, they offered me a full time position at Dallas Town, and I, I left Central. Uh, I had a good experience at Central, but I was I was thrilled to be in my son's district yeah. and to work with David and Ann, mm -hmm. very very fine musicians and hardworking teachers. Mm -hmm. and so that's how that happened. But no, that was not a Suzuki program. Um, it was a well-established traditional program, mm -hmm. and um, okay. Ann and I shared the uh, elementary 
schools, the five elementary schools, and then I helped her at the middle school with the middle school orchestras. Mm-hmm. I, my finally my last three years. Oh, most of my most of my teaching there was general music. Again, I, I thought I was being hired for strings, and they said, "Oh, by the way, we're going to need some help in general seventh grade general music." Yeah. So, uh, most of my career at Dallas Town was uh, mostly yeah. general music seventh graders. <laughs> Oh, even better. I had done a lot of elementary teaching, general music, and and I really had not a lot to go on in terms of curriculum. And I just knew I had to keep their hands busy. Mm -hmm. Um, Started an African drum program and and Mm -hmm. guitar. Uh, And and I think that worked out pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a definite shift. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Finally, my last three years of teaching before retirement, I, I became a string teacher at the brand new Dallastown Area Intermediate School. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I finally was doing what I felt I was. <laughs> right. You got three years in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so so you mentioned David and Anne. Uh, I mean, they obviously had a positive impact on on you. Um, and in what way? Well, and our family. They were so supportive of our boys and. David just gave our boys so many opportunities to perform, you know, concertos and and to have uh, positive experiences. But he was also a uh, a cellist in the York Symphony Orchestra. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. as well. Uh, within, let's see, we moved in November of 1988 to York County, and by January I was playing in the York Symphony, mm-hmm. and and that again I didn't audition for that. I knew the concertmaster John Eakin. I knew some other people. Oh yeah, hey, we need a sub. Why don't you? Play. And so I just sort of eased my way in the York Symphony mm-hmm. all those years ago. Mm-hmm. So I got yeah. I got involved in the musical like of York uh, very quickly and mm-hmm. realized that it was it was uh, a lot a lot of arts initiatives and a lot of opportunities. Our boys uh, benefited greatly from one their their um, the Dallas Town Music Program, mm-hmm. uh, the Junior Symphony and the Youth Symphony Program. They also had a a composition competition that the boys participated in and they, they got a lot of experience mm-hmm. for a small town basically that yeah. served them well when they, they went to to the colleges basically they went they were admitted to the colleges of their choice um, yeah well and, and York Symphony has been around now for 90 years 90 years yes and you've been there for 34 of 34. those uh-huh. right which is just incredible and but how great that your your children were involved as well and I'm sure that, that, was, helps that was that was very special and by the way Kirsten I was looking back I was trying to remember the 75th anniversary year mm-hmm. of the York Symphony and they, they published a book and and I just remember uh, it was just a star-studded year with just Josh yeah. Bell and Andre Watts and Midori and oh gosh, I and that slips my mind on the rest, but it was just it was just yeah. such an exciting year. And your name is on the roster. Uh-huh. Yeah. For them. So you started, you've had at least what, Yeah. Oh well it's 20, 26. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. uh-huh. I yeah. far behind me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because it was in college where I I think I was coming back in summers, like I was playing some of the summer concerts. Um and I think actually it was like uh, Cheryl Stahersky, who got me started, got, she got me connected with Anita Brandon. So that was a great year. It was great. Do you remember any of the other soloists? 
No, like Josh Bell is the one who hands that out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I remember I was sitting uh, in the first stand seconds, and the soloist would always stand right there. You know, they yes. stand back, and just to be that up close and personal to these musicians. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, very exciting. But anyway, yes, for my sons to play in a symphony with me was was uh, uh, really uh, was fun, and it was uh, very special. Uh, and that was a time when and Dr. Robert Hart Baker was the conductor, and he would invite uh, talented high school students to play in the orchestra. And you know that would never happen now. Mm-hmm. You know at the at the level the York Symphony is playing, and also the level uh, most regional orchestras are. You know you don't have high school kids. Mm-hmm. But at that time for our boys it was it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Particularly since two the oldest and youngest went into music. It was uh, a yeah to get that kind of experience. A lot of lit- learned a lot of orchestral literature and yeah, right, yeah, and often that doesn't happen unless there's a competition of some sort. Right, um, I mean they didn't. Well, I, I take that back. Our youngest son Ben, I think he had to do. He did have to do an actual audition. Mm-hmm. The older two boys, they were just sort of. I don't want to say grandfathered in, but oh. they were at the top of the section of the youth symphony, and they were looking for the top players, and they. Mm-hmm. They just, but Ben actually actually went through a real audition with playing the excerpts and the scales and the solo. And, mm-hmm. but. Right, yeah. So, um, let's see. And yeah, so what do you enjoy the most about performing in all of these orchestras? I mean, I counted all of the orchestras that you had listed. They're like I 17. I couldn't believe it either. I, it's, just early on, I, I, I figured out I played in an orchestra since I was in like um, probably sixth grade. That's when our, the string program at my uh, little town of McPherson started. Mm-hmm. And I, I just really enjoyed the teamwork and just well, also the good literature and just uh, playing with colleagues, like-minded colleagues who, who love the music also. Um, and I was very blessed to have fine teachers, like from Les Sperling, the band director, who, who totally committed himself to the orchestra and then Lenora Martin who came on board and my college professors everyone just was all my teachers I think made me who I am you know there's one teacher that stood out I I can hardly say that because each one of them left their mark I think on my my life and my career Um, but I I realized I really love playing orchestras and I, I did not have the the nerves or the I don't know what it takes to be a soloist. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of solos in churches and weddings and funerals and things, but but I knew that wasn't my calling. And and I, I enjoyed chamber music and playing in orchestra. Yes. That's why wherever I was at whatever stage of my life, I sought out an orchestra in order to play. Um, yeah. And when the boys were little, it was very hard. My husband's job was demanding. He was away a lot for evening meetings. But I, I said, you know, if I, I, I want to maintain playing in New York. Like I had given up Lancaster and Harrisburg, but I was wanted to stick with York Symphony. I thought, you know, they're going to be gone soon enough. Soon enough, you know, they're they're going to grow up and be gone. And and what will I have? I I wanted to maintain some skills that I could you know, have after mm-hmm. just an, a, a stay-at-home mom or something. Well, yes, I would say you've maintained your skills. I mean, I like the uh, like the last York Symphony concert. Um, that we had was the all the Bach, uh, the orchestral <laughs> suites, etc. Yeah. Yeah. And to, for, I mean, you are playing at such a high level. Uh, the the symphony itself has, yes. I would say, level. Yeah. 
Yes. And, um, you know, you were in an ensemble of like 13 people mm-hmm. and uh, the strings were incredible. And it took, oh, it took an, an immense amount of stamina to get through that concert. That was a demanding concert. Yes. And and I I must admit, I was really nervous and, and stressed about it because it was like there were four firsts and four seconds and three violas. And so we all had to be at 100% of our, our game. Yeah. We had to we just all had to be right there. There was no room for error or mistakes. And it was one piece after another in the same, you know, the same style, you know, the yeah. Telemann and Bach. And, and that's, you know, you don't think of that as being so technically difficult, but it is. But it is. It oh, is. It's so, te- it's so difficult. So, so how do you maintain your focus through a program like that? Because yeah, it was the the two two Bach orchestral suites and um, some Telemann concertos. Right, right. I don't really know. I, I'm I I'm honest. I have to admit, focusing during performing has always been a, an issue for me. And that's one of the reasons why I could not be a, a soloist or a performer because I, I don't know, I, I would have trouble focusing or I'd be performing and thinking, oh no, what is she thinking about me? Or, oh, there's Dr. There's Dr. And Mr. Caesar out there. Oh no, I'm gonna make a mistake. You know, I, I, that was always a big issue for me. So um, I, I don't know, as I've gotten older, maybe I've, I've been, I've improved a little, but I, you just knew you had to do it. So try yeah. and put blinders on and that's all you're thinking about during that mm-hmm. those two hours of time. I, I know that issue with, with performance, for me, performance anxiety was, was huge. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like I could never pl- prove how well I could play to anybody, you know, like, like in an audition or, or a festival yeah. or something. So, uh, I, I was hoping to change that with like my boys or, or my students. Um, I wanted one of my goals is to try and provide as many performance opportunities as possible. Um, when I began my studio after we moved to, uh, well, we live in Loganville, which is outside of York. Um, I started my York area Suzuki Supervos. Um, and we you know did the group lessons and from the group lessons, we'd have performing groups and I wanted the children to to get comfortable performing in, mm-hmm. in front of people and that it wasn't, so they didn't think, think it was just an isolated that they're the only one doing this, but no, lots of other uh, children mm-hmm. are also playing and we can play together, make beautiful music and we can entertain people and share our gift with, with, uh, you know, with, with other people. So mm-hmm. we play a lot of nursing homes mm-hmm. and, uh, and that was one of my goals, not only for my private students, but for my own sons to feel comfortable performing. Mm-hmm. And it's important too to know that I you're not, that. yeah, to know that you're not alone, mm-hmm. um, and that <laughs> and other and other people like and other students, you know, have these kinds of issues, and that they're doing the and they're doing the same thing that you are. Mm-hmm. So that's great that you can help, you know, build that kind of little community with your your own students. Well, and and a lot of the students, they're much more comfortable playing in a group like that oh, than yeah. by themselves, of course. So it's a good introduction to when they will have to step forward and, and audition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, play a solo. So so that uh, when you know we're, we're thinking thinking of goals, what, what are some of my goals? And that that would be a to just just instill a love of music in children and 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 maybe 
nurture future musicians or even more importantly, nurture future audiences. Mm-hmm. We do need our audiences. I mean, most of my students do not go into uh, professional music, but if they have an appreciation of it, they'll be attending our concerts and mm-hmm. yeah, and keep the arts alive by, by supporting the local organizations and just be active and proactive in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, we're like almost out of time here. <laughs> I can't believe this. Um, what is something that you feel students, um, because you are, you know, heavily involved in teaching, what do you think they should know before pursuing a career in music, whether it's, you know, music education or, or performance? I mean, you, you yourself have two of your sons are professional musicians. And- With my sons, it was never about wanting them to be professional musicians. I, mm-hmm. I, I hope I can honestly say that I didn't try and project my failures as a musician onto them. You know, I, I really don't think that was the case. I really wanted them to have something which they, they could be proud of and could be uh, proficient at. And um, I mean, they, they saw what I did as a musician. And I actually, I think I had the best of all worlds. I, I, I had a really good paying job in a good school district. I taught, you know, that was my day job. And then I could come home and teach a select number of students privately where there was perhaps, you know, possibly more commitment by the parents and the student. And then, then at night I could go play and I could, you know, uh, get all my mm-hmm. frustrations out. So I, I considered that my recreation and my free time to go play gigs and play an art. And so my, my, my uh, son saw that, how involved I was in music. Um, and they all taught lessons privately here in the house when they were growing up. It was a good source of, of, of money for them, pocket change for them. And and then they all played, like say, in New York Symphony. We tried to talk about, you know, when we talk about their careers, that it, it is difficult. Um, uh, it's difficult to break in. They were sort of on a track for a professional orchestral musician. What I tell students and then that to, if you think you're going into music, you need to prepare yourself by very careful practicing and and regular practicing and take advantage of, of all the opportunities in the community, attending orchestra concerts, um, being in, in the opera youth symphonies or wh- whatever was available and just learn learn as much as you can about your craft, whether it's violin or piano or voice or whatever, education. Uh, and I guess I think that uh, the most important thing I try and stress with students is they have to have a passion for what they want to do in life, whether it be music or whatever. And uh, it, that really hit home with me when my son, my oldest son, I can say it was not always easy getting three boys to practice. And, and, and for many years, I was their practice partner. I was with them all the time. And they have to do it when I do it and when I can do it, not when they want to do it. And, but when my thing, my oldest son was in eighth grade, he was, downstairs and the music was turned classical music was turned up really loud and I went downstairs he was on his back looking up in the sky and he just said music is life I can't imagine my life without music mm-hmm. but that's when I realized okay this is working this is this is I see that. where this is going I see where this is going it has, <laughs> it, it's been it's been it's okay we're gonna get through yeah. this and, yeah. and so I try and talk to students about about their passion and and 
they have to be patient. Uh, one of the, uh, I think, great benefits for being a music educator in today's world is that when you're playing an instrument or singing, you can't be holding a device. Mm-hmm. And unless you're, unless you're doing recording or something or doing a, an online lesson, you're not plugged in so much. Uh, and I just feel it's so valuable that students learn the value of, uh, of patience because this is definitely not instant gratification. Yes. Like, well, that, and focus too would go. Yes. That. Learning that focus and just take being willing to develop this discipline and this, uh, uh, dedication and that they network with friends and other teachers and, and encourage them to um, maybe take lessons from other teachers. Like I have students out with uh, piano teachers or theory teachers or get coaching from other violin teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and when they're, up, up, you know, visit a lot of schools and you'll probably want to attend a school where you like the teacher or you and the teacher are a good match. And so encourage them to visit their schools and get a lesson from the teacher. Mm-hmm. before they they make a commitment so so awesome well noni thank you so much you're very welcome yes i mean this has been an absolute privilege so um the effect that you've had on the york community has been far-reaching and substantial and we're so grateful for all the work you've done and you continue to do oh well thank you i just feel like i just plug along year to year and, <laughs> and I, yeah. I must admit the relationships with the families has been one of my greatest joys i mm. lifelong friends from the yes. from the students and and it's trying to stay connected with a lot of them and follow them through their through their careers and and then i'm i'm just amazed at uh the effort that a lot of parents and, and kids kids put into their music and another thing i wanted to just say is uh you know, it is, it's really fun and wonderful when you have the stars to work with, but the Suzuki uh, philosophy of all children can learn. I just was always moved by the students I taught that it was very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to be the stars. They weren't going to be the first year players. They would never be go to the festivals. And yet they, something in them and they, they loved music and they were willing to, you know, come to the practices and, 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 and practice and sign a practice card and just, you know, year after year, I, I just, I, I feel like that was what my mission. Yeah. To be there for all the students. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, we are so glad that you're out there supporting us. If you ever have a chance, uh, please give us some feedback. We love to hear from you, especially if you have any questions or suggestions as to who you might enjoy an interview of or if you would like to sponsor any of our episodes. Uh, we have lots of musicians, students and musicians, and families of musicians listening in. So uh, please contact us at lifebetweenthenotes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and video versions can be found on our Life Between the Notes YouTube channel. So follow us at all of these places and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And with that, um, have a great day. And thank you, Morgan and Noni. Welcome. Thank you. We can do our Zoom wave. It's like the Muppet Show. Everybody's in their box. Um,